Any comments on, on ramping? Lehman Brothers uh, defines it as three to five years out. They have an encore program where they specifically recruit people who have experience in the financial sector and have been out um, three to five years, and they do include flexibility, although, you know, it depends on the boss about whether you're going to ask for it or not. Uh, but uh, um, the Joe Gregory, who's the person who's in charge of it at Lehman Brothers, uh, really sees this as a chance to coach one-on-one uh, with his the senior people who need this particular talent to help them look at people who don't want to work full time. Although he's had to he's had to do a one on one coaching with with the people who are in the encore program. Well, and you know when Wall Street adopts an on ramping program that there's a good ROI, you know, because Wall Street's not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. We have, um, <laughs> we have an alumni. Oh. Well, I can tell you our recruiters are anxious for us to formalize our policies so that they can start recruiting part-time people. But the other thing that we're doing is we're looking to implement an off-ramp policy that you can leave for two years and come back. So you you don't really leave. You, you still maintain your laptop and connectivity. You probably want to stay connected, and we're looking at what kind of structure we need to keep people up to date without them working. Um, but you can leave for two years and come back without interrupting your career, without having to look as an external to, to find a job. So that is one way we're approaching the off-ramp, on-ramp situation. But, uh, I mean, I think recruiters are having a harder and harder time. So they're looking to... For creative ways. For businesses to say, open the door to some other things because I can get you more people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is about money here. So um, let me tell, um, share another kind of dimension. We have something called an alumni association. So when you do leave, you, well, you've gone, but you're not really that far away. And there's a connectivity going on the whole time. So it, it helps when, you know, if people kind of know what your skills are and you're good at them and you've stayed connected, and maybe it's even three, four, five years down the road, if you have some sort of connection to the organization through this alumni group, it's, I think it's easier. It's not a slam dunk, but you have a better chance of people knowing what your skill set is. And then when that part time opens up to slide you in there versus going externally, which costs a whole bunch more money, um, and trying to recruit. Yeah, and very similarly to Marilyn, part of what we've done is a, what we call personal pursuits, pursuits program. So first, hopefully, as we roll out mass career customization, there's more options for making a choice that's not so binary, I have to stay or go. But then the goal of personal pursuits is that you can take up to a five-year leave. And, for instance, if you're in our audit business, keeping your professional licensure is very important. So we'll pay for you to keep that licensure. We'll invite you to all the office events so you stay in the network. And so you're even more closely connected than you are through our alumni network, which is very similar to what Accenture does. So there's lots of connection points. And so we found through that then we do get um, a lot of boomerangs returning to our organization after a period of time. But and I'm actually at that point where I've been out of business school. My kids are 9 and 12. A lot of my colleagues in business school are now at that point where maybe they've been out 8, 9 years, haven't really stayed connected or stayed current. And, and that can be, you know, for the individual an uphill battle. I mean, I think there's a point at which it's um, 
the individual has to take some ownership to update their skills and get themselves connected again as well. So that because you're always looking for that win-win. You know, there's got to be a win for the organization. There's got to be a win for the individual. That's one of our guiding principles in mass career customization. Is it's not sustainable if it's all about the individual or it's all about the organization. Now it may be different at different moments in time. It may be a little tilted, but there's got to be something there for both. And then I think when you see that there is, it really works very well. And that flexibility going both ways is sort of a core tenant that I've seen successful with our experience consultants. In fact, when Laura was asking the question from Genentech about when you're using technology, how do you, you know, limit it? When you have this results-based way and you talk about that flexibility goes both ways. So maybe the 32 hours, you know, isn't a structured eight to four or whatever, because from a how work works, it, it can be a 24-hour, you know, availability, but when are you actually getting work done? You, when you let the consultant or individual employee figure out when it needs to get done because they know the results, the key is always that they have to know what's expected of them, you know, in a larger period of time, whether it's a month or a quarter or whatever, and then they can manage it within the technology that enables them to have a more fluid way of getting the results done. Um, so that's how I see England has had a program for years called Career Breaks, which is what we're, ju- we're discovering here. And I think one of the things that, that they've done there is uh, people can return on a part-time basis. Um, but they've also um, asked someone to mentor the person. So um, you, you leave, but you stay connected in the ways that you described. Yep. And that includes someone whose responsibility it is to stay connected with you. And I think that, that that particularly helps at work. So let's bring, and I want to do more Q&A because I know there's lots of questions. Let's bring it back to the beginning because a lot of the people in the audience are thinking about this in some stage of potentially either pitching it to their executive committee or implementing it within HR. What were the first steps that you guys took? What were the learnings that you can share with the audience just so that they can kind of get a mind around what, where do I start? Josh, you want to kick that off? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and I, th- I feel like I'm in a, a good position to talk about it because our firm is in an embryonic stage uh, with its flexibility policy. And uh, but I've also been advising clients in terms of developing their own their own policies. Um, you know, we 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 developed a task force of um, of committed people to uh, to to research this question. Um, to uh, I, you know, we retained a consultant to advise us. Um, and this is my bit of uh, self-promotion here. Um, you, you know, I think you have to consult a lawyer as well in terms of developing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you never, yeah. When in doubt, call your lawyer, uh, your favorite labor and employment lawyer. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm quite serious because there are uh, legal ramifications and legal landmines that you want to be aware of. Um, you know, alternative work weeks. You know, we talk about... We've been talking about exempt, non-exempt. I mean, there are some significant overtime issues here. Um, as Ellen pointed out at the beginning, you know, when are, you know, when are we working? Um, you know, y- you have this ability with this flexible place to be able to work away from the job. Well, how are you accounting for that time? Um, and, and are you being paid for that time? And, you know, a lot of these issues come up um, and, you know, really need to be scrubbed out with with your with your lawyers um, you know there are other issues too in terms of um, 
Uh, workplace flexibility is a form of accommodation. Uh, we don't think about it maybe as an accommodation, but think about um, your obligations under the Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, you've got an obligation to provide a disabled employee with a reasonable accommodation. Well, if you're providing non-disabled employees with sort of job restructuring and this sort of workplace flexibility, you can be sure that that is going to be, um, you know, something that you need to, to consider for disabled employees as well. So um, there, there are a number of issues. Uh, if you're in a unionized environment, uh, other issues to uh, concern yourself with as well. The obligation to negotiate these kinds of changes with um, uh, with the labor union. So, um, so yes, it's self-promotion, but I'm also not, not really kidding. I mean, there's some important <laughs> legal issues to consider. Um, and, uh, you know, th- those are some... That's a good starting. So if we, yeah, if we so say, in terms of first steps, I mean, yeah. um, it, the, the task force, the legal issues, and, and scrubbing some of those out, and... Um, so, uh, so Marilyn, did, did you guys start with the task force, and, and what would be the next step after you hire Josh? <laughs> well, we have our, our attorney at part of our task force. Uh, I would just say pilot first. And I think you've heard it here a few times, but you can get away with so much more if you call it a pilot. And, and the thing, I mean, if, if, if your group is resistant, I think that's a great way to dip your toe into these waters. The other thing that it does is it builds champions. Um, and, and I think to your point, um, if you have a set of champions in the business who can speak to I did it. I had great results. I mean, because there are a lot of people who are afraid that what if I offer this and everybody wants to take advantage of it and I'll have no one. And, you know, I'm, I mean, they're, they're fantasizing about sitting alone at a cube or something. <laughs> but, but the reality is that the, if you do pilots and what we did was pilots in different countries so that we took into consideration different cultural aspects of it. So pilots in Asia, pilots in Europe, pilots in the U.S. in different areas. Those people are our champions now. And, and now we have been able to form the task force to say, now let's put in place some of the policies that make these enterprise-wide. But we have an easier road since we have these champions in the business. Excellent. So you've got your pilot. Tim, can you build on that? Executive buy-in is, is critical here. And obviously the business case we've talked about, but you know, really getting the, the mind share around, you know, not an option, and yet it, it's an option about how we execute. And, and E&Y started this, this road with our People First initiative, which was right at the very top. Jim Turley, our chairman, uh, said that we're not in the business necessarily of serving our clients. We're in the business of developing our people's careers. And as a little bit of a reality check here, uh, when we talk about people first, when it ori- initially rolled out, there were a lot of people that were using this as a crutch to ask for things that maybe weren't possible either from a lead time or from a reality of serving clients. And so the the reality check became it's people first but not you first. And uh, <laughs> so, so that, that that was in the initial years. We've, we've evolved past that a little bit. Uh, and, but but that that really served as the foundation for for getting executives and for you know the top tiers of partners and the the you know, the partners and the senior managers to really start to buy into the fact that uh, I need to make business decisions with my team and with my people with me as part of that decision making process rather than just a straight uh, P and L type of a decision or something that that uh, doesn't consider the impl- implications on our people. 
Uh, and flexibility is clearly one of those those pieces that absolutely has to be uh, baked into what our people are thinking and and how they're operating and how they're how they're serving their clients and how they're learning, developing their career. So people first, executive layer. That was that was where we we started. Great, Molly. Any specific learnings as you guys did your pilots? Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely echoing the idea that the business case is imperative. Build it, say it over and over again, never stop communicating it. Driving change from the top. The board of directors was very engaged very early on. Um, there's a great story in the book about them really just challenging us to make it happen faster, faster, faster. But each of our implementation teams is led by a group of line leaders from that area of the organization in partnership with talent and HR but driven through the organization. And one thing that hasn't been talked about, as you set up those implementation leadership teams, as you look for your executive sponsors and voices, make sure that those champions reflect the diversity of the segments of the organization you're trying to engage. So we've talked about how it cuts across both genders. The leadership, therefore, needs to do that. We've talked about how it speaks to the boomer generation as well as Gen X and Gen Y. Again, make sure that that representation is there. The other thing that can make this more approachable that we've found is, again, the notion that, well, we haven't had a formal structured process the way that we're implementing now. Informally, this has been happening for quite some time. It hasn't necessarily been talked about a lot, but um, if you share the stories of how your leaders, of how people at different levels have built their careers and made it work with their life, it can be phenomenally powerful. It can add a lot of credibility and make it a lot less intimidating. So um, our chairman happens to be a woman, Sharon Allen. She shared, shared her story. Our CEO, Barry Salzberg, he shared his story. Because, of course, we've all had different phases of our journey along the way where we've been more or less focused on that particular career. And so that, again, lets people begin to see, oh, okay, this is possible, this has some credibility, because some of those very successful in the organization have also traveled this path. So we think that's another great lever. Um, And I guess I would say don't do what we did. Um, Going back to the very beginning, because um, I think Accenture made some assumptions and incorrect assumptions. And those assumptions were made by very smart people sitting in a dark room, sort of disconnected in many ways from what the people were wanting. And it was that sort of, um, you know, the mantra is now the receiver defines the value, not the giver. And so you would have some of our leaders saying, or some of our you know, people saying, well, I'm sure that everyone wants blah, 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 fill in the blank, flexibility, four-day work week, you know. And so this stuff would be rolled out with, I mean, you know, bad results because people are going, no, that isn't what I want. Um, so we actually went back to, you know, step one, you ask the people, we did a survey. And that was how we found out, okay, pick the top two things that you want that you don't have in terms of flexibility. That was able to basically take this kind of shotgun approach down to a very laser focus that we could actually begin to impact. And when we found out that people were looking for career flexibility was one of those elements, then we could begin to, to target that, identify it, figure Figure out the steps, work in focus groups, et cetera, et cetera, and then take that piece of information, put a backdrop of what the U.S. trends are, you know, so here's what the business case, the trends are, here's this element that we're looking at, and then we took it to a pilot. But I would say be sure you are not making assumptions. Perfect. Um, people, we, we always talk about you don't see the light unless you feel the heat, and the heat is not only talking to the people and knowing what it is that they want, but also you're so so 
you really do need to customize it to your employees, but you also need to customize it to the business challenge that they're addressing. The, 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 the general business case won't work. It needs to be your particular company's business case. And you need not only the expected champions, but the unexpected champions. Uh, oh, my God, the CFO is for this. At IBM, they made the CFO uh, their champion. Uh, I wanted to tell the story of how Merck has done this because I think it's interesting. They created constituency groups of different uh, represent, representatives of their workforce, and there was one on white men, which I think was very important. Um, you know, people of color, women, um, et cetera, uh, and, and they had different levels of people representing them. And they had the question they were asked, what would make this a good place to work for people like you? And then what would make um, this company a good place for customers like you? So they took the customer and the employee focus in coming up with new ways to look at uh, at how they're going to change Merck. And obviously there's a compelling business reason because the pharmaceutical industry has been having some challenges. That's fantastic. The customer first is fantastic. I'm going to go to questions in just one second. <laughs> there's like 80 hands up. Um, the other critical flexibility initiative that I know a lot of companies have emailed me about is telework. So um, can anyone speak to specifically any strategies around telework as, you know, it's becoming more popular, any learnings around as you implemented it? Yeah. So telework is people working um, in their home or in a pod kind of way. So if you've got, Sun is very big on telework. In fact, they just released, for those of you who are looking for more data, uh, they just released their iWork program survey results, um, and they basically found that they're reducing their carbon footprint as an employer. Their employees have much higher retention because they have um, satellite offices. So not every, and no one at Sun, I think, has a permanent office. You just go into any of the offices, and there are pods that you can sit at and get your work done, or you can work from home. So it's this, uh, this idea that you're a fluid person that has places that you can work, um, or you can choose to work from your home. Well, Cisco's pushing the envelope on this one. Okay. So, um, and again, it's uh, as a technology company has an advantage in that we are using our own technology. <laughs> so that that's that's a good thing. We get it at cost. So, uh, <laughs> but the the Cisco story is that as we refurbish our buildings because they're at the stage where we're starting to go building by building and refurbish them across all of our campuses, we build them with um hoteling or uh common workspaces. And, and what's amazing to me, because I am a baby boomer, um, and I work and have an office and can actually close my door. So these are they have offices in these areas, but they also have these open pods with um, desks that sort of are in a, a cluster. And um, I was dreading the fact that my building was going to get uh, refurbished, and now I was going to have to be in this space because I like to have my photos and, you know, very baby boomer. So um, enough said. So the interesting thing for me is that many of our uh, Gen Y workers who don't work in buildings that have this common space are going there to do their work. And the managers who are working in those buildings have been completely converted. They are now our best spokespeople for that kind of open situation. So um, it 
It's a smaller carbon footprint. It allows and promotes collaboration. Um, as long as you can do what I have to do, which is give up your personal pictures and stuff. Actually, everyone has locker spaces. They're common areas. Um, if you visit some of the other companies in the Valley, like Google, they started that way. So for us, it's a conversion, um, and and it's and it is some change management, but it's absolutely uh, delightful. And in other countries, they have um, screen shades that move across different areas. I mean, it's very very interesting. There are even um, pods where you can go take a quick nap or rest, put on headphones, do things. So it, it recognizes the new ways that people are working, and everyone seems to love it. Um, and can I just say one thing about that? And this is sort of a piece of research. Um, Accenture started hoteling, I would say, probably seven years ago, sort of as a, is this going to work? And you would have thought the world was going to end um, because everyone went from this kind of bricks to more of the hoteling, you fly in, you leave, you, you know, whatever. It's really interesting. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and we had one of our tech people come in and say, you know what? Here's how it's impacting what you do, Sharon. Um, we believe in the next five years that even all of our people who are using laptops right now, 50% of them are going to go to PDAs or a whole different time of even the technology in laptops is going to be so versatile. And the impact to that is in the next three to five years, Accenture has $760 million worth of research uh, of real estate leases coming up for renewal. So now we're at this kind of convergence of technology research costs, even with our hoteling, and the way people live and work. And how are we going to be smart about making assumptions or not making assumptions on this enormous amount of millions of dollars that we're going to have to think differently about, too? Fantastic. I don't have an answer. Okay, right there in the middle. 